Good morning. Good morning again. So if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we've been in a sermon series entitled Listen. Jesus' Prayer in John 17. And during this series, we've began uh, each time by coming to this candle and lighting it. Now, this sermon series takes place and Jesus has just finished a long conversation with his disciples. And at the end of that conversation, he begins to pray. And in that prayer, we see Jesus pour out his heart to his Father. And so we light this candle to remind us that even as, as the disciples were in Jesus' midst as he prayed, so Jesus is here with us this morning. Have you ever stopped to consider your story about the people and events that have led you to here and now, to actually sitting right here this morning? I was fortunate enough to grow up with two parents that loved Jesus. They were all in. From a young age, we were taught about who Jesus was. It wasn't formalized. It's not like Saturday mornings on the couch while mom and dad were in front of the chalkboard lecturing. Instead, it came through the course of the messiness of our life together. My parents modeled what it meant to love like Jesus in the midst of our lives. I'm so grateful for all the ways that it shaped who I am today. I also know that this is not everybody's experience. And yet, here we are together this morning. We're worshiping God with one voice as the body of Christ. This is a testament to all the ways that God has been work, at work in our lives. Praise the Lord, because God is at work, likely through the witness of the people He's placed in our lives. And because of it, we get to call Jesus Lord. And we get to live for Him. Which brings us to a question. What does it look like to live for Jesus? What does it look like to follow Jesus in the midst of where he's placed us? While I was growing up, I remember that one phrase that my mother would often say was, be in the world but not of the world. It was a good reminder of the tension and cost of following Jesus. And it stuck with me. But if we press into this statement this morning, we have to ask, what does it mean to be in the world but not of the world? Specifically, what does a life look like? What, what does a life like that look like? Turns out, it's probably not what we expect. It probably, in fact, looks harder and better than we expect. Our passage this morning tackles this question. Our next stop in... Jesus' prayer in John 17 is verse 13 through 30, through, excuse me, through, through 16. And it can be found in the Black Pew Bibles on page 877. It'll also be up on the screen. So John 17, starting with 13, says, 
I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have a full, the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of, of it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for the legacy and the testimony of your work in our lives. That work that's revealed by us even being here this morning, Lord God. Even being in your presence and being able to worship you. Being able to hear from your word. We praise you, Father, because you loved us enough to care about us, to make yourself known. And even now, Lord God, as we, as we dive into this prayer, Lord God, reveal yourself to us. Help us to clearly see what you'd have us see. Help us to understand what you'd have us understand. But even more so, Lord God, help us to live our lives in accordance with what we know to be true, Lord God. We love you and we praise you and we commit this to you. In your name. Amen. Sorry, it's up on the screen a little later than I said. So as you read verses 13 through 16, you may notice that the phrase, the world, appears actually kind of a lot. Now when Jesus speaks of the world in this prayer, he isn't just referring to a place. Instead, we see the world in several ways. First, we see that the world is a people who reject the Word of God. Second, perhaps surprisingly, we see the world as a place that's under the influence of the evil one. This second meaning of the world might be the most surprising to us. When Jesus speaks of evil in this prayer, he's not referring to abstract evil, like good versus evil. He's actually referring to the evil one. He's speaking about the devil. And this isn't actually the Gospel of John's first reference to the evil one. Jesus actually brought up the devil way back in John chapter 8 during a tenth exchange between some religious people and Jesus. We can just see that exchange here. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In verse 42, we see people, even religious people, who should be welcoming Jesus, instead rejecting Jesus. But as the exchange continues, Jesus actually brings the problem into focus. The dangerous part of the world isn't those who have rejected Jesus or his message. Jesus points to the real danger in John 8 and then again in John 17 that we're looking at this morning and actually in about half a dozen other places in the Gospel of John. The source of the danger is the prince of this world. The devil opposes God. The devil's lies are preventing people of the world from accepting Jesus or his message. The devil is actively working against the message of Jesus. 
And for this reason, the devil is dangerous. We see the same thing in Ephesians 6, chapter 6, verses 12. Or verse 12, excuse me. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Okay, so the devil is dangerous. But let's make sure we actually have a clear picture of what that danger actually looks like. Because both historically and presently, people have struggled to appropriately understand the power of the devil. Consider this quote from C.S. Lewis. It comes from a book called The Screwtape Letters that involve a fictional account of a sort of a manager demon giving advice to one of his underlings. And in the preface of the book, C.S. Lewis has this quote, and it says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors. These words were true in 1942 when Lewis wrote them, and they are still true today. We're a society that suffers from both problems simultaneously. On one hand, we accept, we accept evil as a concept, but we reject the existence of the devil. And on the other hand, we're still a society that suffers from a deep fear of supernatural evil. And if you want evidence of this, think about the highly successful and lucrative horror film industry that keeps pumping out films about it. But as Lewis points out, both of these views, to over-spiritualize and under-spiritualize, benefit the devil. So don't do it. Don't over-spiritualize the devil or under-spiritualize the devil. If we under-spiritualize the devil, if we deny his existence or if we ignore him, then we're unaware of his influence or danger. We remain vulnerable. On the other hand, if we over-spiritualize the devil, then we give him powers that he doesn't possess and we're, we're looking for him and afraid of him around every corner or underneath every single rock. So we can't ignore the devil and we shouldn't see him around every turn. So what then is an appropriate way to understand the devil's powers and abilities? We've already seen some of these qualities of the devil uh, back in John chapter 8. Earlier this spring, as we were going through earlier section in John, we got an opportunity to, to spend some time learning about the Holy Spirit. So this morning, by way of a comparison, I'd like to contrast the devil's schemes and the qualities of the Holy Spirit found in John 16. Let's look at the Holy Spirit and the devil. First, the Holy Spirit. John 16 refers to the Holy Spirit as the advocate and the spirit of truth. It says that the Holy Spirit guides in all truth, glorifies God, and speaks only what he hears from God. Meanwhile, the devil is referred to as the accuser, the father of lies. Scripture says that the devil spreads lies and deceit, that he rejects God, and that he, gets to, that he tries to get others to disobey as well. At every turn, the devil is opposed to the work of the Holy Spirit. He's fighting what God is doing in the world. But let's not become confused by this comparison. While we can compare the Holy Spirit and the devil and see that they're opposed to one another, 
we're not making a one-to-one correlation here between the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the devil. Good and evil do not, in fact, exist in balance. God and the devil are not like a yin and yang that are balanced out with one another. Consider this quote. The devil can only distort and twist the beauty and truth of God. He is a sick parody of that which is good. Not equal in any way, merely a perversion and an infection of the good. It quotes by a guy named Tim Bushfield, who's a local author. Um, you should check him out. Um, God is far more powerful than the evil one. In fact, he is already overcome. The power of the Holy Spirit defeats the lies and schemes of the devil. Let's look more closely at John 16. Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world stands condemned. Friends, the prince of this world, the devil, is dangerous. But God is much, much more powerful. The power of God has already overcome the devil. The Holy Spirit has come and he is at work in this world. Our lives are a testament to the power of God. We should be wary of the devil, yes, but not afraid of him. God is greater, and he has provided for our protection. But even defeated, the devil is still dangerous. The devil is a formidable enemy, but he's already lost. Yet he's still active and at work. Scripture describes him as prowling around like a lion. For this reason, Jesus prays for our protection. Look again in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Our strength comes from Jesus. He prayed for our protection. Jesus' prayer can be trusted. Through God, we have protection from the devil and we can put our trust in His protection. It reminds me of something I learned not all that long ago. You see, I'm from inland New York. And um, it wasn't until very recently that I realized that people in New England, some people in New England, actually surf. Now, growing up, if you had mentioned surfing to me, it would have, for me, conjured up images of the Beach Boys playing and like beautiful blue skies and sandy beaches, people with bleach blonde hair who all talk like Keanu Reeves. But... New England surfers are like a whole other breed. They actually like surfing in the winter. Now, I was talking to a New England surfer just the other day, and they were sharing with me about what the process of surfing in the wintertime looks like. And they were describing that for them, what they found is that they have to put on their protection. In this case, a dry suit. They put on a thick neoprene suit with wool lining. And in that, they're able to actually go out in the water 
and not, they tell me, feel cold and discomfort. They're able to surf safely. Not only that, they went on to describe what it would look like if they didn't wear the proper protection. The dangers that are there in the winter Atlantic waters could be hypothermia or death. But they've come to trust in the protection that their dry suit provides. So it is with our protection from the devil. It can be trusted. It can be relied on. But yet, as we see in Ephesians 6, we still have to put it on. Sure, we could try to surf with less protection. We could just like put our swim trunks on and, and go out. Not a very good idea. Ephesians 6 reminds us that the protection that we have comes from God, but we still have to put it on. So what does it mean to do that? What does it mean to put on God's protection from the evil one? What does it mean to put on what Ephesians 6 describes as the armor of God? Here's what it looks like. It looks like being all in for Jesus. Remember that our protection comes from God. Ephesians 6 describes it as armor, but armor doesn't work if you don't put it on. It also doesn't work particularly well if you just put some of it on. So think about if you decided that you were going to put your dry suit on, but just pull it up to your waist and then like tie the arms around and go in like that. Or maybe you pulled it on over your shoulders but failed to zip it up. Or forgot to put the hood on, or the gloves, or the boots, or whatever. Not the same level of protection. Full protection requires not that you just put some of it on, but that you commit, that you put all of it on. And so it is with God's protection. It it involves being all in for God. It involves making a daily choice to follow Jesus and be all in. We have protection from the devil by daily choosing to follow Jesus. This is a hopeful light in a challenging reality. And still, if we return to our text, we're reminded that we live in a world that has largely rejected Jesus. That the prince of this world, the devil, is dangerous. That through Jesus we have protection. But still there's a tension a sense of alienation, a sense of foreignness in the world, a recognition that this is a world that we need to put on protection in order to be safe in. The disciples themselves might be feeling some part of this alienation or tension, even as they're hearing Jesus pray. And in fact, in John 17, verse 16, Jesus perhaps calls out what they're they're feeling at that very moment. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So we have to ask, is this all that there is? To resign ourselves to feeling alienation and tension and being in a dangerous place that's not our home? Thankfully, no. In fact, in verse 13, Jesus makes a purpose statement for not just this passage, but for his entire prayer. He actually explains why he's praying in front of the disciples. We see it here again in verse 13. Jesus says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. What is this joy that Jesus is talking about? Turns out it's a big deal. 
Jesus has mentioned joy seven times between his farewell discourse with his disciples that we last, uh, our last sermon series was focused on and this current sermon series where we're focused on the prayer. He's talked about joy seven times. He's been making frequent connections between his joy and the disciples' joy. And once again, in this passage, we see Jesus begin to talk about joy again. And not just talk about joy, but he's talking about joy in the same passage where he's been describing the dangers of the world. A passage where he's praying for our protection from the devil. So considering all of this, how do we understand Jesus' joy here? We actually began this morning by talking about Jesus' references to the world in his prayer. I think to understand the joy that Jesus is talking about here, I think it's helpful to look at another use of the phrase the world that Jesus made earlier on in the Gospel of John. This probably be a familiar passage to us. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We've already talked about the world as a people who have rejected Jesus. We've also come to recognize that the world is a place where the prince of this world, the devil, is at work. Despite this, God loves the world. He sent his son, Jesus, on a mission to make God known. Jesus' joy is to have carried out the will of the Father, to complete his mission. Jesus' joy is his mission to reveal God to the world that he loves. Last week, Jake helped us to understand the Trinity, to see the love and relationship that existed between the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit that's existed since before the creation of the world. In this passage this morning, we're reminded of Jesus' joy and his mission to reveal God to the world that he loves. A joy that led Jesus to take on flesh and to dwell among us, to face pain and sorrow and rejection and even death, all for the joy of making God known to the world that he loves, joy in revealing the extent of God's love for us. And Jesus' prayer is not just that we would experience joy his prayer is that we would be filled to the full measure of his joy. That even though we are remaining in the world, even though he has returned to the Father and we're staying, even though we're in, the, in danger and need of protection from the devil, Jesus is praying that we be filled with a full measure of his joy. We're not just here biding our time. We're not just here trying to fit in. We're here to be filled with joy. And we're filled with his joy by joining Jesus on mission. By carrying the work of revealing God to the world that he loves. By following Jesus. By being all in for him. We are on mission. This is how we reconcile our need for protection and the joy that Jesus is praying for. He's sending us out on mission. In fact, in a few verses, a few verses ahead of where we're at this morning, in John chapter 17, verse 18, we actually get to see Jesus pray this very thing. He says to his Father, As you sent me into this world, 
I have sent them into the world. This is what it means to be in the world and not of the world. We're on mission. This necessarily changes everything about the posture of our lives and our towards our lives and our relationship towards the world. Because it's, it turns out, by default, there are two common and incorrect postures towards the world. One is to integrate. And if we integrate, that means that we treat this world like our home. We become like it. We try to fit in, we try to blend in, we try to become indistinguishable from the world around us. And the other posture that we could adopt by default is isolate. And if we isolate, what we do is we wall ourselves off from the world that scares us or makes us feel uncomfortable or not fit in, and we try to avoid contact with it. Why do we do this? Why is this the default? Because it's easier. It's safer. It's easier to try to fit in or to disengage. But it turns out there are major problems with both approaches. One problem is that neither one correctly responds to the danger of the devil. If we integrate, we don't have enough fear of the evil one. We perhaps then believe a lie of false security and comfort in being integrated in the world, and so therefore we're ignoring the danger that's there. On the other hand, if we isolate, we perhaps have too much fear of the evil one, too much fear of the world around us. And so we take false comfort and solace in isolating ourselves, walling ourselves off. And in doing so, we ignore Jesus' heart for the world. The integrationist doesn't have enough fear. The isolationist has too much fear. And neither approach has enough joy. Jesus' prayer doesn't fit into either posture. Jesus isn't calling us to fit in or to wall ourselves off. Jesus himself didn't fit in. He stood out kind of a lot. He didn't isolate himself. He came and he lived. He walked. He spoke. He interacted with the world. Jesus' joy was to fulfill the mission set before him by God the Father, to reveal God to the world that he loves. So Jesus himself didn't integrate or isolate. Jesus was willing to enter into the place where he could love with a love that was full of grace and truth. He was willing to be hated even to the point of death. This is the life that Jesus is calling us into. A life in the world, but not of the world. A life as foreigners in a place that's not our home. A life where we are not left behind, but given a purpose. A life where we may be, and very likely will be, hated by the world because of the word. A life where we will need protection from the devil. Yet, a life that is filled with the full measure of Jesus' joy in revealing God to the world. To follow Jesus, to be all in from Jesus, is to be filled with the joy of Jesus' mission. To reveal God to the world that he loves. Now, when you think about being on mission, what do you think of? It's likely that you think of missionaries. What's a missionary? A missionary is somebody that travels to a place that they're not from, somebody who faces danger and rejection, and 
A missionary is one that does so because they're filled with the joy to continue Jesus' mission and revealing God to the world. Now, given that, you might be thinking, can I even do that? I'm not a professional missionary. Yes. Yes, you can do that. And it starts by rejecting the lie that we can't do it. It starts by accepting the truth that God has planned this with us in mind. And by remembering that Jesus prayed for our protection. It also is going to involve being filled with the full measure of Jesus' joy. That's going to mean falling in love with Jesus and choosing to be all in for him. It also is going to involve being filled with a love for the world like Jesus had. We are missionaries. So what does this mean for us? Do we have to leave Gloucester and move overseas? Maybe. But maybe not. We're sent into the world, but that includes our homes and our families, our neighborhoods and our schools, our jobs and our friendships. I'm reminded of um, a few years ago, I was uh, put it, set up as a supervisor in charge of a project. And a good friend of mine and colleague um, was one of the people involved in the project. And so because of that, I was sort of in charge of him. And the stress and the deadlines and the friction that's just involved in making a project happen, that spilled over into our relationship. And it built and it grew and it got worse. And it eventually became clear that something needed to happen. Something needed to be done for the sake of our relationship. So I went to him and I apologized. And I affirmed the fact that I cared a whole lot more about his, our relationship than I cared about the project. And he was moved. And he spoke and I was able to hear him. And our relationship has never been the same. It's been stronger for that experience. And in the aftermath of it, he said something to me that just caught me off guard. He said, the fact that I went and apologized was because I believed in Jesus, because I was a Christian. And it caught me off guard because I never associated that with being a witness to my friend. Instead, all I was doing was modeling the, how I had been raised. My parents had taught us from a young age that we forgive one another, that we go to people and say that we're sorry. And they had done that because they had heard and received Jesus' forgiveness in their lives, and they felt the call of Jesus on their life to model that for their children. I'm Thinking back to the story, I'm also kind of amazed. Even now, on a day-to-day basis, I probably, like many of us, struggle to think, how do, I, how do I share what I believe in my workplace? How do I reveal Jesus? And I admit that I don't always do it very well. In fact, probably I often do it not as well as I could. But even at that point, one of the things that God had done was at some point prior to my conversation with my friend and colleague, I had shared enough that he could make a connection between that apology and what I believed. And I don't tell you that this morning to make you think anything special about what I did.
But to, to say that when we think about what it means to be on mission in the world, we might have this view of mission that's radically different from what it might mean. It doesn't necessarily have to involve going to faraway lands. It might not have to involve standing up in front of a huge group of people on a mountaintop and proclaiming Jesus. Maybe it will. But it might, and it likely will, involve apologizing to a friend or coworker, or raising a child to love and forgive like Jesus does. Will it be hard? Yes. Will we mess it up sometimes? Yes. Will, will it feel dangerous sometimes? Very likely. But it's joyful and amazing and unexpected. And it's going to require everything that God has given us and nothing that he hasn't. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what's holding us back? Are we afraid of being rejected? Would we rather fly under the radar and make ourselves fit in? We can't. We don't belong to this world. We belong to Jesus. Would we instead rather find a nice, quiet commune to live our life in devotion to God apart from the world? Would we like to make a bubble for ourselves uh, so that we won't have to be hurt by the world or feel like we're fully protected from a world that sometimes feels foreign and scary? To feel safe from the schemes of the devil? Friends, we don't have to do that either. We have protection from Jesus already. We don't need to integrate. We don't need to isolate. And if we do so, what we're giving up is the joy that Jesus is calling us into. Following Jesus, being all in for him, is wonderful and dangerous and joyful. And this morning we get just a taste of what it looks like. Over the next few weeks, we're going to get the awesome opportunity to dive into what it looks like to follow Jesus on a life of mission in the world. But this morning we see, the, see Jesus' clear call to the fullness of joy on mission, to be filled with Jesus' joy on mission, to reveal God to a world that he loves. Let's pray.